We come now to our time of uh, opening up the Word of God. Our scripture this morning continues in the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, we're on to the next three verses in chapter 3, verses 14, 15, and 16. I'm reading from the new, from the English Standard Version translation. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that you, <clears throat> I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, once again, as we come to the scriptures, we confess that we need the presence of your Holy Spirit, illuminating our minds to understand the word that is inspired by you, breathed out by you, uh, given to the apostles of the New Testament times and other New Testament writers to complete the canon of the Old Testament and Hebrew scriptures so that we might have even uh, for all the life of the church, the sacred repository of sacred truth. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would enable us to be humble as we come before it, that we would listen to it carefully, that we would find uh, that it would take root in our hearts and lives, that we might be obedient to the voice of Jesus in the scriptures, that we might continually read the scriptures and know that all of the scriptures are the voice of our Savior and Redeemer. You have spoken to us in these last days in our son, in your son, that we might honor Christ as the one to whom we owe all allegiance and obedience because he bought us with his own blood. Therefore, we pray, enable us to listen to the glory of Christ. Amen. Now, I want to begin this morning with another reading of scripture. This is from John, John chapter 18, verses 33 to 38. This particular passage is an episode that occurs on the last day that Jesus lives, uh, on the morning uh, when he's first arraigned before Pontius Pilate. Early in the morning, he appears before him. And so we read these words. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it about you, about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. Now just to note, that Greek phrase there is idiomatic. It's a declaration. Yes, you say that I am a king because I am. That's what it means. So Jesus goes on to say, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? 
Now, I want you to notice two things as we begin here. First, with reference to Pilate. Do you see that Pilate represents the lostness and the confusion of the whole world since the time of the fall? The world has lived in silence, the silence of not hearing or knowing the truth, and therefore the world has lived in the silence of darkness. Second point, Jesus. Jesus defines his purpose in coming, his coming into this world, the coming of his kingdom into this world, in terms of truth. He says, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, there's no more important claim that Jesus ever makes about himself than this claim. His voice, he claims, is the voice of truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to him. Yet stop for a moment and think about the significance of what Christ has said. We live in a culture today in which these words of Christ are totally at odds. For most of the last 70 years, the educational systems in the United States of America have increasingly undermined the idea of truth as something that is absolute and fixed. And they've replaced that idea with the idea that truth is something that is always relative and changing. What was true for people at one time and in one place can't possibly be true for people who live in another time and another place, especially later in the history of the human race. But this is why there's so much brokenness all around us. If truth is always subject to change, we can never really know if we are where we are supposed to be because what is true today may not be true tomorrow. The story of Pilate and Jesus highlights what is significant about Paul's teaching in these three verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. Clearly, Paul is concerned about truth. Paul says that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. That means that what Paul says to Timothy about the church falls directly into line with his purpose of Christ coming into the world as the voice of the truth to a broken and fallen world. So we can express that our main concern this morning, sort of the main concern of the Apostle Paul in these words. The church's purpose is to echo Christ's voice, the voice of truth. In terms of the church's behavior and identity and confession, the ministry of the church is always about the truth. And therefore, we have three things, three points that I want us to see this morning that fall out naturally as an outline of what the apostle has to say. I want us to look at first how the church should conduct itself in terms of its behavior and then how the church should see itself in terms of its identity. And thirdly, how the church should confess its great confession with respect to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, first. How should the church conduct itself? The practices of the church is what we're talking about. Its conduct, its behavior, as well as its policies and its principles. What must the church do to conduct itself in the way that it's supposed to in order to echo the voice of Christ as the truth? Even Christ who designed and established and founded the church. 
So we come to verses 14 and 15. Paul is letting Timothy know that he hopes to come to him soon. Uh, we don't know if Paul ever did make it to Ephesus, and we have no record that he ever did. And in fact, the the the, the tenor of early church history here would indicate that Paul never made it again to the church at Ephesus. So there's an urgency about what Paul is writing to Timothy. There's an urgency about the things that are going on at the church at Ephesus. Timothy needs to address several matters. They're harming the church right then. They can't wait for a possible visit by the apostle Paul. So Paul is giving to Timothy clearly in writing the definite principles and doctrinal practices that the church must practice. Verse 15 says, how one ought to behave. Now, so far, Paul has already commanded and charged Timothy in the first couple of chapters and at least 10 things that need to be reformed or need to be adjusted uh, to bring the church into its right conduct according to the truth. So let me review these briefly. Um, chapter one, bad teachers and bad teaching. Uh, the instructions to Timothy basically amount to this. The church has to shut it down. It's destructive to the truth. It's contrary to sound doctrine. But then sound doctrine. The church must promote the goal of godly love with respect to sound doctrine. The church must teach and always must teach motivated by what is genuinely love. And then thirdly, spiritual warfare. <clears throat> Bad doctrine and bad teachers war against good doctrine and good teachers. The church must protect itself from the bad. The church must promote the good in accordance with the truth. Fourth matter, prayer. The people of God must pray for the people of the world. This is gospel practice. The church is failing God's redemptive practices in the world if the church fails to pray for the world. Fifthly, Christian men, therefore, are to gather to pray, not quarrel. They're not to waste their time on foolish theological speculations. They're not to get angry with one another over these kinds of things. They are to gather together and lift their holy hands in prayer. Sixthly, Christian women, likewise, they're to pray as well. They are to adorn themselves with modesty and with good works rather than following the questionable clothing fashions of the world. But then seventhly, Christian women need to remember they are not permitted to teach in authoritative fashion because that role is only for those who are called to be shepherd teachers. Eighth, shepherd teachers then. They must be men of godly integrity in every way. Deacons, likewise, they must be men of godly integrity in every way. And then tenthly, the ladies who serve with the deacons, likewise, they must be ladies of godly integrity. Now, this is the truth of how the church is to conduct itself. There is a true way, a true approach to how the church is to conduct its life and its ministry. That is what Paul is writing. He's saying to Timothy, the church has got to echo the voice of Christ with respect to the truth. Now, we've mentioned this already, but this kind of an approach that, that places our human activities, our beliefs, our roles, 
into categories of unchanging and absolute truth, even this is even if this is part of a religious system, this way of looking at life is so opposite to how children and college students have been educated in American public schools. It is so contrary to how American education has indoctrinated people to think ever since the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s. For most of the last six to seven decades in American life, the educational systems have increasingly undermined truth as something that's absolute, fixed, and unchanging, and replaced it with the idea that truth is always evolving, always changing, always relative, so that our beliefs and our practices must always be changing to meet newer conditions of life. Now, this is why our culture demands less and less moral and spiritual regulations in the name of religious truth. Even men and women who've been leaders in the evangelical church have been influenced by this cultural demand. Now, let me make it clear what I'm talking about here. Uh, this is recent, but it's something everybody knows about. In 2015, the Supreme Court made it a constitutional right for there to be same-sex marriage. In the aftermath of that, a sad number of prominent evangelical leaders began to shift their position to move in the same direction. They reversed their opposition to same-sex marriage. Now, these leaders didn't suddenly come to a better interpretation of the Bible and suddenly found out that it's okay to be okay with this new definition of marriage. No, that's not exactly the way it happened. Rather, they adopted a position like this. Listen carefully. Any interpretation of the Bible that re would refuse marriage to two people who really love each other can't be the real voice of Jesus. And the idea underneath this idea is that even God's truth will change to speak to new situations and new conditions. The voice of Jesus is now to be seen as a living voice, a voice that speaks new truth into our growing knowledge of the world and human beings. So no, we don't really have to follow what Paul has written to Timothy. Even the Bible's truth is to be understood as flexible and evolving and changing to the new realities of the 21st century. But if you step back and look at this clearly, all this approach means is that for these people who think this way, the voice of the culture has become the voice of Christ. Now, that's not just happening in what we would call the, the theological lefties, those on the left side of the evangelical spectrum and those who are on the deep left side of, the, of uh, theological liberalism. It's also affected more broadly the evangelical culture in America. Here's what I mean. For 13 years, I was head of the Bible department at a local evangelical Christian high school. But in those 13 years, I never had any genuine or lasting influence upon the conduct of the chapel worship services. I'm convinced that it's a biblical truth that we ought to have reverence for God. I'm convinced it's a biblical truth 
that worship is the preeminent place where we have reverence for God. God is to be worshipped with reverence, with awe, with the deepest kind of respect. But most of the persons in charge of the chapels over those years, and most of the speakers who came to speak to those chapels, and most of the music that was played in those chapels did not connect with the idea of reverence. Very little of the music and messages ever pointed to the holiness of God. Now, my point is this. We are so indoctrinated to think that truth is quite flexible that even things in the Bible can be bent and shaped for a modern audience. A modern audience needs excitement and entertainment. And so we think of worship as something that needs to be more exciting, something that needs to be more entertaining to the very eclipse of reverence. That is why we need to hear what Paul is saying. We need to keep holding to the unchanging truths of how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church, in all of our principles and in all of our practices. Now that leads us to the second point about identity, how the church should see itself, because how we see ourselves as the church and as Christians will always affect and influence how we conduct ourselves. Identity always leads to a certain kind of conduct. Now, the Apostle Paul in verse 15 gives us three descriptions that define the identity of the church. First, he's going to say we are, we are called the household of God. Secondly, we're called the church of the living God. And then thirdly, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, I only want to touch on the first two because I'm going to spend a little more time focused on that third. So first, we're called the household of God. Now, this word household here uh, speaks to the idea of members of a family and therefore the members of the family of God rather than as a structure. Now, it's true. Another concept in the New Testament is that we are the house of God. That is, we are the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit indwells us. But here the picture is family membership. Being part of the household of God is to be a member, a family member in the family of God. The truth of our salvation is expressed here and that we are made children of God. We, we are made members of his family by the fact that God has adopted us into his family. In John chapter 1, verse 12, uh, we read these words that all of us who have believed in his name, that is the name of Jesus, he, Christ, has given us the right to become children of God. That mean, means believers are family. We are brothers and sisters to one another. We have this family connection. Christ is our elder brother. We, in fact, will share in the inheritance of his glory. But right now, this means that our conduct and our behavior toward one another needs to be in accordance with the truth that we are God's family. Now, secondly, we are called the church of the living God. And the emphasis here is upon the phrase living God. Uh, church itself means the assembly, the gathered ones. And so we are the gathered ones who belong to the living God, the God who is alive, not a God that's a piece of silver or wood, not a dead idol, uh, not a non-living abstract principle, not some lifeless personality-less force, not a set of moral ideas, not some impersonal creed. We are first 
and foremost defined by God who is alive, a living God who loves us, who redeems us, who commands us to pray, who hears our prayers. Thus, we are people who belong to God's family in a living relationship with God our Father through Christ his Son. Now this third description. We, as the church, are called a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, whether we translate this word buttress as foundation, the emphasis is the same in terms of the idea of support. Either translation goes along with the idea of a pillar as providing necessary support. Paul is describing the church as that which gives support to the truth. Now, there's likely some historical background in what Paul is saying here to the Ephesians, because in the city of Ephesus, there was one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple designed for Artemis or Diana. Uh, this temple was known because it had 100 marble columns that were each 60, approximately 60 feet tall. And these 100 columns held this massive, massive marble roof. It was so prominent, so large, that it could be seen from virtually everywhere in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire back in the New Testament times. So with that image in mind, think about what Paul means. The New Testament church and all of the local churches and all of the places where these churches have been planted, all of them and all of the members of them are pillars and supports, pillars and foundations, pillars and buttresses of the truth. You see, if you were to take the church out of the world, there would be nothing to promote and to propagate the truth, which is the gospel of Christ, even the whole counsel of God. Without the church, who would be speaking God's truth to a world that is buried under every sort of false idea? Who would bring the truth to the world that is dominated by philosophies and ideologies and worldviews and religions, all of which are untrue and all of which have been inspired by the father of lies? Christ has designed the truth and all of its members to be these pillars that support God's truth in this world. We are to faithfully echo the voice of Christ. We are not to echo the voice of this broken world. Now, that is why it's so important for us as believers to take this matter of truth as of first importance. Jesus called us to be light to the world. If we don't echo the voice of Christ, the voice of truth, if we don't carry the message of this truth to the world, if we do not shine the light of truth, then there's only darkness and the church becomes part of the problem rather than the light that is the solution that points to the truth, God's eternal truth, God's absolute and unchanging truth. At the same time, we're not the truth. We don't create the truth. We are not to update and modernize the truth. We have a calling. 
We must be the pillar and support of God's truth in this world. We must echo the voice of Christ as our highest earthly mission. Now, that applies to every one of us who's a Christian. None are excluded. All of us must know the truth of God's word. We need to be reading it. We need to be studying it. We need to be learning it. Then, as God gives us opportunity, we are to be speaking the truth. And Jesus gave us a promise. Everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. Now, then our last point, we come to verse 16, uh, where Paul talks about how the church should confess its great confession. So verse 16 begins this way. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, this sentence really requires a close scrutiny to see what the apostle is saying. So listen to a couple of other translations. The NIV translates it this way. Beyond question, the mystery of godliness is great. The New American Standard this way. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, virtually all of the translations that you might look at, 20 some different translations, they all agree on this. Great is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness is great. But they wrestle, all of them, with a single word that begins the ESV translation, which is given here as, quote, we confess. And the New American Standard says, quote, by common confession. That one Greek word itself means something which is undeniable, something that must be admitted, something confessed by all, admitted by all, and virtually denied by none. So we can paraphrase what Paul says this way. It is the common undeniable confession of the church that the mystery of godliness is great. But now with our close scrutiny needs to look at these two other ideas, that of mystery and godliness. The word mystery, as it's used in the New Testament, routinely means truths once hidden that have now been revealed. And in the New Testament, it's used of the gospel and Christ and the way of salvation. It's used of these connected truths about Christ, which were once hidden during the Old Testament times, but now with the advent of Christ have been fully revealed. And then you have the word godliness. Now, the ordinary meaning of this godliness in the Greek is piety, that is, reverence toward God. But it also means religion. That is a system of beliefs and doctrine, the beliefs and practices that a religion would have. Now, it's interesting that here in the Greek, we actually have the definite article. So it really reads the godliness as if it's a reference to the faith as a synonym for the Christian faith, what the church confesses and believes about Christ. So now we can complete our paraphrase this way. It is the common, undeniable confession of the church that the mysterious truth, once hidden but now revealed, concerning the religious faith that is all about Jesus Christ, is great. A little bit awkward, but let me read it again. It's the common and undeniable confession of the church that the mystery of the gospel, 
once hidden, now revealed, the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. This is great. And that captures what Paul is saying. But then Paul goes on to give a representation of that great confession and content of the faith, what is all about Christ, in terms of something that scholars see as an early Christian hymn, another Carmen Christi. They see these six lines that Paul gives here as taken from an early hymn about Jesus. That is why most translations give these six phrases in six lines and then arranges them in a poetic fashion to indicate that we have something here other than straightforward writing and prose. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. These six lines are small, but truthful, and a faithful summary of the truth that is in Jesus. And note especially, this is a story song. It is written about things that really happened in the very life of Jesus Christ. The life of Christ was sung by the New Testament church as a confession of the Lord of the church. So Christ was manifested in the flesh. This is a reference to the incarnation. Jesus really was a historical person who really appeared in history. Then secondly, was vindicated by the Spirit, both by his resurrection, Romans 1, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, that Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, but further also vindicated on the day of Pentecost when Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit upon the early New Testament church. Thirdly, was seen by the angels. Yes, those who know the gospel story know that on the morning of Christ's resurrection, there were angels who were in attendance of this event. Fourthly, was proclaimed among the nations. All Christians understood that this was a reference to the fulfilling of the Great Commission. Five, was believed on in the world. In every major city, disciples had been made and churches had been planted within the Roman Empire. And six, was taken up into glory. Also part of the gospel and post-resurrection story that the ascension was witnessed by the disciples 40 days after the resurrection. Six lines from an early church hymn expressing the great mystery of the gospel confession, the gospel once hidden, but now proclaimed throughout the world. So I want to bring our this, morning's, this morning's message then to a conclusion by focusing upon application that's highlighted by this last point. By quoting this early church hymn, Paul is teaching us that our great confession of Christ is not only truth we are to believe, it is truth that we are to sing. We are to sing of the greatness of our Savior, who is our God and King. Our worship is grounded in unchanging, absolute, and everlasting truth. The truth of the God who became one of us, and as one of us, became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, in order to purchase the church with his own blood 
enabling us to understand that the mystery, the great truths once hidden, now revealed, the mystery is great. So great, it summons us to sing. So great, it summons us to worship. It summons us to proclaim the truth of things which actually happened. The truth of the God who did appear in Christ in the course of this world in order to change the course of this world. Truth that we are called by Christ's command to echo in the message of the gospel. May we be faithful to the purpose of Christ. May we be faithful to the purpose of the church to echo the message and voice of Jesus, the one who is the eternal truth, incarnate in time to bring salvation to this world. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, work within us to will and to do your good pleasure to the glory of Christ, to the salvation of men, that we might be faithful to this generation that has lost the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.